0: Welcome, leaders. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. In addition to hosting this podcast, I am the owner of Leadership Excursion Company and founder of Spark Women's Retreat. I help teams communicate and work better together and support people with their personal development journey. And I use the word journey on purpose. Improving the way you lead, working with and inspiring others, or making personal improvements is an adventure. It's one of the main reasons why I am so passionate about leadership and educating others on the topic. There's always something new to learn, a new situation to navigate, an opportunity for learning and growth. If you are looking for guidance as a leader, manager, or as a person, visit leadershipexcursion.co to learn about our programs and to enroll in any of the courses that are available on our schedule. So today, I am so excited to have Christy Grice in as our guest. The story she's about to share will both devastate and inspire you. Learn how Christy and her family not only navigate a personal tragedy, but what they do now to support others who are experiencing a similar circumstance. And with that we welcome you to the Leadership Looks Like podcast. Join us as we explore personal stories of leaders who are making an incredible impact in their businesses, lives, and communities. Get ready to be inspired, see things from a new perspective, and learn new tools to help overcome challenges. This is what leadership looks like. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. All right, we've officially known each other face-to-face for five minutes. About that. Yeah. And what I love about this and this podcast is I was at a networking event and I had two friends there. Okay. They both know you <laughs> and somehow they made the connection that they both knew you and in the moment they did a story after story after story of how they know you, um, you know, one is Stacy James with yes. Dazzle Africa. Absolutely, the one um, and only. Yeah, and then Katie Drasnan, yes, who has worked for you.
1: Yes, we yes. have a past life together. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I love it when you know life collides exactly, and um, you know, they introduced me to you, and I'm so glad you came down. I know you're only in Las Vegas for a little t- short amount of time, so I appreciate you coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I want to know all about Africa, but we're going to get to that later. Okay, first let's talk about Mickey's Miracle. Yes. Is that is it Mickey's Miracle? It's called Mickey's Miracles. Okay. M I
1: C K I E S Miracles. Yes. And it's a nonprofit organization dedicated to global pediatric epilepsy awareness, education, and advocacy. Mm -hmm. And so our vision is that anybody anywhere in the world that has a seizing child or baby is aware of how devastating seizures are to a baby's brain and knows to get to the higher level of care immediately to see a pediatric epileptologist and to get a diagnosis and treatment immediately. Um, And that's because the development of a baby's brain is different than that of an adult. Epilepsy affects it differently. And so um, that's really our message and our vision. And so we help families that have a baby who is having seizures get to the highest and best level of care immediately.
0: Now, you formed this organization. I did. Correct? Out of something that happened personally with your family.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, Our little girl, Mickey uh, was three months old. She had a healthy birth and in the middle of the night while we were feeding her, she had what I would describe as a Hollywood seizure. When the arms went out, her back stiffened, her eyes rolled in the back of her head and my, it went on for what seemed like an eternity, but it was probably about a minute. And my husband and I looked at each other and said, I think that was a seizure. How old was she? She was three months old.
0: Oh my. So she had like a grandma. It, it, I don't know how I would, I would
1: exactly describe it, but yes, it was, you know, it's difficult, difficult to describe it when you're thinking about a little baby. Yeah. I just know that it was obvious that that was something. And the reason why that's a really big deal is that the type of epilepsy that she was later diagnosed with uh, presents itself completely differently than that first seizure. So I feel like there was a, a ray of hope, which is a weird thing to describe or say about having a seizure, but the seizure disorder that Mickey ended up having, which is called infantile spasms. It's one of the most catastrophic forms of childhood epilepsy, um, is characterized by eye openings, um, by, um, head drops, um, by rapid, um, arm, arm and, and, um, and elbow movements. And so that they happen in succession in what's called clusters. And they're very, very, very sometimes subtle, but absolutely catastrophic to the brain. And so because it happens to about 1200 kids a year. There are not a lot of pediatricians that see this. Only twice in their career they usually see this. And it's many-time misdiagnosis, colic, or acid reflux. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is this devastation of this child's brain, and they they should be seen immediately from a neurology team, and they're being sent home or having different drugs given to them that are not appropriate for that diagnosis. And so looking back in time, her having that major uh, first seizure was really important because she had Seven more seizures over the course of 24 hours. We were we were ambulanced to two different hospitals, and the second one, then it morphed into this infantile spasms, and which is indicated by uh, what's called a hypsarrhythmia. Mm-hmm. It's a um, certain spike of um, the the waves in an EEG, and it's very characteristic. Um, it's a chaotic brain pattern, and it's characteristic to being uh, diagnosed with infantile spasms. So. We got to the hospital, uh, we got the correct diagnosis, but unfortunately the outcome was very dire. Um, infantile spasms is not like other forms of epilepsy. It has to be stopped completely. Uh, it will morph into worse seizure disorders like lennox gastaut syndrome and Gervais. And so where this child is seizing um, every day, um, very, very difficult to control. And so we were kind of given the option that, you know, your daughter may die from the epilepsy. She may die from the treatment or she may live in what you would consider a vegetative state with feeding tubes and just very, it wasn't an option that I and my, nor my husband were willing to accept. And so I just had this maternal instinct that, you know, this something was gravely wrong, that um, Mickey was going to die if we didn't do something different. And so we were sent on um, a, a long journey of different uh, trials, trial and error for different drugs, but um, when we should have been on two specific drugs for that diagnosis. And so it was, Uh, Just quite devastating uh, having this beautiful, healthy baby girl. And then within 24 hours, you're told that, you know, she has a life-threatening epilepsy disorder.
0: Yeah, nobody's really sure exactly what it is because you still have to go through that experience of going from doctor to doctor, hospital to hospital, just to kind of experiment and figure out what's going on, right?
1: Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, first thing is, you know, my husband and I are, are well-educated people. Clearly, I speak my mind um, and I speak English. And so it was difficult for us to get through just that whole experience um, with all the resources that we have. I just couldn't even imagine what it'd be like for anybody that didn't have half as much support as we did, which is one of the main reasons why we started Mickey's Miracles. But yes, we we were dealing with a hospital, a children's hospital um, who diagnosed her correctly, but unfortunately they didn't put her on the right anti-seizure medications. And so Mickey went on to fail over eight anti-seizure medications over the course of the next eight months. Oh
0: my goodness.
1: It was devastating, and knowing I knew instinctively that whatever we were doing, it wasn't going to work. So my husband, 20-year military veteran uh, in the Air Force, he had a very militaristic approach, which I appreciated. Babe, this is what we're doing. We're on this protocol, which gave me comfort, but I was still asking what's next.
0: You had your intuition. I just knew it. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's a very – every parent out there that has a child that – Something's off, something's wrong. That's my our number one um of all the things that we tell parents, it's you've got to trust your your maternal and paternal instincts. You know something's off and you go to a doctor and they will sometimes say, No, you you don't you're overreacting. You just trust that and you keep going and fighting until you find the doctor that listens, mm-hmm. which is what we did.
0: Which is just healthcare in general. Except you're you're dealing with it, your child who's less than one. Yes.
1: She, she was three months and then, um, we got to her failing her eighth anti-seizure medication.
0: And what do you mean by failing? Does that mean so, she's seizing again? It, yes. Yeah. The,
1: so this, it doesn't either, it either, for instance, the first protocol, uh, was ACTH, which is a steroid. You can't be on steroids long, too long term or else it, they will kill you themselves. And so she was on this, this ACTH and it stopped the spasms. But the minute that she came off, we were, I remember we were at a coffee shop prior to getting a follow-up EEG to see how her brain was doing, and I almost dropped my coffee cup. I saw her starting to spasm right oh, there man. 10 minutes before the appointment. And when she failed her last drug, I just remember saying to the doctor, what's next? And he kind of shrugged and said, well, we can look into brain surgery. And at that point, I knew we had exhausted the resources at that hospital that very day. Uh, God really intervened in many different ways um, during this journey, but I get a call that very day from a friend from USC where I had gone to college with, and his niece had had brain surgery at Chalk Children's in Orange County, right next to Disneyland in Southern California. And he said, will you talk to my my cousin? I said, absolutely. So she called me and we started talking and she said, you're not going to believe this, but our pediatric epileptologist would... I didn't know what that was. We'll be speaking to our support group, and she only speaks to it once or twice a year. And this was a Tuesday, and it was Friday. I said, I'm there. We flew down there, had a friend watch Mickey. We went, and as she was speaking, she went over IS, and she basically said, these are the two drugs, and that's it. And Mickey had failed those both of those drugs. So I'm crying, and we go up to her, and we told her our story, and she said, she needs to be here immediately. And there was no... There was no waiting. There was no hesitating. There was just this source of strength. And it was the first time I stood before a doctor and there was no, well, we could do this or we could do that. It was like, this is what needs to be done immediately. And this doctor, Dr. Mary Zupontz has done this for over 40 years. So. What a pediatric epileptologist, it's a neurologist that then has gone on and trained under another pediatric epileptologist, and they have the ability to read the EEG and the MRI of a child um, that's seizing and having epilepsy. So they can not only see the physical manifestations, they'll do what's called long-term monitoring, where they do a video on the child, um, as well as their head being hooked up to an EEG machine. So the head's wrapped up to an eight-foot cord, think about that, and they could be... Up to a week or two, um, tied to, to this um, monitor, where they they look at the EEG and they see the waves of the brain, and they have the ability to see an MRI, look at the structure of the brain, look at the EEG, see the waves of the brain, and then look at the physical manifestation um, and, along with uh, a behavioral assessment and different assessments, clinical assessment of the child, and determine what kind of epilepsy it is, where it comes from in the brain. And then you'll use that after they... they see the child in clinic to use diagnostic testing to, to back up what they are thinking the seizures are, are starting from. And so there's generalized epilepsy where there's epilepsy and it's happening all over the brain. And there's focal epilepsy where they actually, there's a point in the brain that the epilepsy is coming from and We are so grateful to say that we were able to find that focal point, thankfully, because we got to the right hospital. And the crazy part of the story is when we were driving from Northern California to Southern California to this hospital, the the previous hospital called us and said, hey, we got the results of your MRI. Your daughter's MRI is normal, which would seem like something to be grateful for, but not of a parent with a child with epilepsy. We were praying for this focal point because if a child fails two anti-seizure medications, they have a 90% chance of failing
0: all. Right, so you're not getting an answer. No. Basically, that the old hospital was saying, we see a normal result. This is still happening, so we still don't have an answer for you. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And for for us, it's just devastation because I'm already thinking that see, that epilepsy surgery is the only, that's our last chance. It's our last hope. We had failed the kinogenic diet, failed eight anti-seizure epileptic medications, and here we are, and we're driving down there, and my husband looked at me and said, babe, just, Take a deep breath. We're gonna get there. We're gonna have a hospital, and what a level four hospital is? It's fully comprehensive epilepsy center. So they handle everything from all four facets of of what a epilepsy center are: are anti epileptic medications that can be prescribed, the ketogenic diet, which you might have heard you know mm-hmm. heard of a lot of. It's it's in mainstream consciousness now. Yeah. Deep brain stimulation and brain surgery. So those those are the options, and only there at a level four can a child be evaluated for brain surgery? So one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about is that there's a huge delay to getting to that center. And a lot of kids that could be eligible for brain surgery, maybe their only option for seizure freedom is not being given to them or it's given to them too late when seizures have already taken a hold of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's devastating.
0: Yeah. Tell me about Mickey.
1: Oh, she's just amazing. She was uh, a beautiful little happy little girl. And then when the epilepsy kind of came in and, and the spasm started, her whole personality changed. And that's one thing that's really difficult for a lot of these families is that it changes because the brain waves change and it makes it their brain chaotic. And so their personalities start to kind of fade away. And it's, you don't see the smiles as much. Um, and also anti epileptic medications will have side effects as well, um, affecting people's mood, personality. Um, just overall view of life and lens that they look at life through. And so the blessing in all of this is that um, the day before Mickey's first birthday, they discovered that um, in that MRI, when we got to that hospital, that um, actually Mickey had a malformation over the entire left hemisphere of her brain That at the same MRI this first hospital missed. And so they were able to remove that part of the brain where the seizures were coming from. And um, the healthy brain on the right hemisphere took over for all those missing left brain functions. And I can tell you after six years of occupational therapy and physical therapy and dance therapy, music therapy, swim therapy, we have a little girl that's now graduated from uh, physical therapy to dance. She's in an hour and a half dance class with typical peers. She's uh, in swimming. She's replaced speech with vocal lessons and loves to sing. And she's just a sassy little fashionista. Um So much fun, strong, And, you know, really my hero, I mean, she is the inspiration behind my work and really allowing me to find my calling. And I really feel the reason why I'm here is to help other families um, who have a seizing child navigate that and figure out how to provide their child with the best that is available to them so that they never wonder that they've done everything for their child. because. Families like ours can handle having a special needs diagnosis or having um, really difficult things to overcome. But what I've seen parents that they can't handle is knowing that they could have done something, but they didn't because they didn't know. And mm-hmm. epilepsy is so stigmatized and um, it's such a secret. It's so shameful. Um, it seems like in, and um, the, there's many reasons for that that people don't talk about it because they don't talk about it. The awareness isn't there. And there's this underlying um, shame to talk about. I have people whisper it to me and I'm like, why are we whispering? Yeah.
0: I mean, so um, my Mm -hmm. in-laws and this Shelly Helbert was on the podcast a while ago and she shared her story of, um, you know, her, we as a family were just getting an autism diagnosis and, you know, Anything that's out of the ordinary or quote not normal, there is, there's a stigma attached to it. And we really need to just be helping each other, exactly. right? Because it's so hard as a parent. You're just, a, you're a parent. You don't know what you're doing in the first place, right? So Mickey was your first child. No,
1: she was our second.
0: Okay. So, so that, you'd already had the experience of. I have, but babies mm-hmm. make weird movements, right? Right. So
1: they, they do weird things with their arms. And, and so having. You know, I, and we had a child after Mickey, which, whoa, that would just, we finally ended up doing genetic testing and making sure because I was freaking out constantly. Mm -hmm. That movement looks like a spasm and that, and, and, um, You know, then we had to deal with having another child that was at home with my mother and, and what that was like, you know, the siblings in many times, the siblings of uh, children, um, who have special needs, there's a real balance there. You know, you're, you're taking care of the sick child and they're being left. And Mm -hmm. how do you balance that? How do you allow them to, to accept maybe if they're the older sibling that this is the, accept that this, they're always going to have a sibling that may needs a little bit more support. Um for us it's been beautiful because we treat Mickey and we're able to treat Mickey like we do the her siblings and she goes to time out and we've just held the bar high for her and she's <laughs> achieved that um and with her brother she, you know he's he's learning about compassion and not everybody looks alike and people have really difficult Things that they have to overcome, but you know, we, we can't, we can overcome that as a human race, a lot of difficult Mm -hmm. adversity. So I think it's been a great thing, but yeah, it's definitely, um, having a medically complex child is a road that no parent ever expects and there's no roadmap for it. And then if you have something that isn't in the mainstream consciousness and and hasn't had light put onto it, like epilepsy and what I'm so determined to do and grateful to be on the show to share, then, then we're even overcoming another barrier mm-hmm. is because we're, we're saying, okay, now we have to educate you to get to that level of care that to react as if you just got a cancer diagnosis. Um, and, and to, because time is of the essence.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you're you get connected with this doctor. Yes. You fly back home. You get Mickey in the car. You're driving her to this hospital. You yes. get this test result on your yes. way down there, and you're just, you know, you freaking are freaking out, freaking out. Yep. You have no idea what what lies ahead. So you go back to the hospital, and what happens?
1: So we get to the hospital, and. First of all, getting to that higher level of care was night and day. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a full... 360 look at your child. So you have not only do you have a hospitalist, so a doctor that's in charge of looking at her whole physical well being, but you have nurse practitioners that are um, in, you know, focused in epilepsy. You have geneticists that are coming. You have a pediatric epileptologist. And then in addition, you have a whole team of pediatric epileptologists because there are about six or seven at that particular hospital. And all of them, they really take a team approach. So when Mickey, um, what happened is, they started just getting a lot of information and data. So everything is like, we need more information. So her head was wrapped up. Um, she gets an IV, which isn't fun. Um, and that's because in case she has seizure, they can administer seizure medication. Um, they have a video monitor on her. And so we're there minimum. You're thinking, you're going to be here a while. So we were there at least 72 to... Um, probably 72 hours, maybe a little bit longer, where they're looking and taking data about all this information they're doing. Um sequencing, you know, to see microarray sequencing to see if she has any genetic issues. And it turned out that she did, that she had a microdeletion on chromosome 17 and 70% 70 of kids with that microdeletion, it's called coulon Defreeze syndrome, have epilepsy. So that's why this had happened. That's why there was a malformation um, because my husband actually had extra material on chromosome 17. So it's super, it's really fascinating. And it was really, it's so important for families to have that genetic testing and to know that it wasn't something that I did as a mom. You know, actually, it was my husband. You know, we, yeah. t- we joked about that, right? Um, and and it was to to really know um, and to have that really understanding why. So we got that, and then we were able to find out that she had this malformation of the brain and she was one of the quickest that they had gone to brain surgery. They, in one week um, of us being in the hospital, they found this cortical dysplasia. So a malformation of Mickey's brain on her parietal, occipital, and temporal lobe. And they said that, you know, the best course of action would be to do brain surgery. And it really, we didn't wrap our heads around it until we had a surgical evaluation and consultation where you meet with the neurosurgeon and the pediatric epileptologist. And they sat us down and we had already heard, you know, your daughter may never be, will never be normal. She may never walk or talk and these things that you never want to hear. But then to hear this isn't to stop her epilepsy. This is to preserve the quality of her life. Um, when that sunk in that we were on a train. Train to, you know, it was not going to be good where we were going to end up. I really know that I don't think my daughter was going to make it. Her spasms were. From eye openings to her head hitting the ground, chipping mm-hmm. her teeth. And, and so we knew this, this was our last and, and only option really for Mickey. Um, we had failed, you know, eight drugs and the ketogenic diet at that point. And so we were, we went into it and it's never something that you think that you'd be grateful for. But on the day before Mickey turned one, believe it or not, the surgeons removed her parietal, occipital and temporal lobe on the left hemisphere of her brain, stopping her spasms. And starting her on to a path of rehabilitation mm-hmm. and to the miracle that she is now. And she still is on anti-seizure medication. She probably always will be. They describe her brain as being vulnerable to that. And they left her frontal lobe in, which is where the motor strip is. So we are grateful that um, we were able to preserve that, but there's still a little bit of activity there. So she's on anti-epileptic medication to protect her brain. And, um, we're, you know, seizure free and we have this happy, healthy little girl. Um, and it's been a long journey, you know, no doubt. I, I definitely, when we came home, um, had PTSD and was just, I wanted everything to be perfect because then my daughter wouldn't die. I mean, these aren't rational thoughts, but, um, then, you know, that's when I started yoga and I kind of had a, a moment with God where I was just like, use me, make this be for something, uh, and, <laughs> Careful <laughs> what you ask for because right. here we are. And <laughs> I'm so grateful that I did. But just really quickly, you know, families just started coming to me, and I just made my own little business cards um, to, to hand to the therapist that we worked with for Mickey so that I could help other families.
0: Yeah. And well, I mean, you're describing that transition. So it seems like it happened so quickly, but you had already been on this months long journey. Yes, it happened
1: overnight. Exactly. So we had gone from three months to 11 months. Mm -hmm. And then within two weeks, we went to brain surgery. um, And then that's when the real work began. We Mm -hmm. came home and it was just, but I mean, I just every single day was, thank you, God, there was no spasms um, because so many families, in fact, one family that went in Um, and you know, one of our other inspirations is baby Danny. We went at the same time as another family. And when we found out that we had a focal point, they found out they didn't. And Danny passed away about three months, um, after Mickey's, uh, like one of her, her one year old birthday. So, um, you know, were the were're the lucky ones and that's why we started our organization Mickey's Miracles is to help families navigate this road to a raise the awareness globally about pediatric epilepsy so that everybody is aware so if they do have a child but and to educate, Gen Xers and millennials so that when they have babies, they'll know what to look out for. Um, but then just to help these families get to that hospital and to navigate this, because I just was looking around at my husband going, why didn't we know about this?
0: Right. And you know, I also think about you and your husband, you're going through this together. Um, it just blows my mind that you navigated this and then you were you turned around right away. You have your daughter at home. She's just gone through brain surgery. And then you automatically want to help other people. But how did your family get through this together? What Did you do anything extraordinary or mindful that really helped you get through this?
1: That's a great question. There's a 95% divorce rate of parents with children with neurological diseases and mm-hmm. disorders. Um, that's catastrophic, and if you can imagine, you have these two parents, and if they have other siblings, or if they have multiple siblings with 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 other special needs, it just it can just destroy um, so much. For us, I think we had already been through quite a bit in our lives. This was by far the worst thing that I've ever experienced in my life. But I had lost my father um, ten years prior, um, and then in the first three years of marriage, Gabe and I lost both of his parents back to back. Within a year and a half of each other, so we had been through a lot, and I really think um, both of us marrying at later in life, we had a lot of life experience. And, and he was definitely he was my twin flame, and when we met, it was you know kismet. So I think having all of that um, really was very helpful. Um, it was my support system for sure. It was having my mother, who was a rock, and lived with us. We didn't realize at the time how it was all going to work out, but she had lived with us at the time. And um, so she was able to watch my son. And you just you really t- take a hold of all those moments together. Uh, we were a family of faith, so there was a lot of prayers involved. And, and this mm-hmm. definitely um, dove me deeper into that spiritual faith that I, we have. Um, but just being in gratitude, I think that's the doorway to all blessings And being open and willing to use our journey and our pain to benefit other people and and knowing that we were now stewards in a way of a story um, of pediatric epilepsy. And so now we have a responsibility to pass on what we've learned to the people that are behind us. And I think that really, you know, maybe saved us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just think about if you had not... That it's that one moment where you were met with opportunity for for your daughter. And you know, sometimes things happen too where life comes at you so fast, sometimes you miss things. But you guys you guys saw it and you you went for it.
1: With the brain surgery? Yes.
0: Yes. I think Well not just the brain surgery, but going to that other hospital. I mean, you'd already been through so many experiences.
1: I have my entire life benefited from listening and trusting my instinct. Yeah. And um, some people call it the Holy Spirit. Um, for me, it was knowing that there was a, a God was watching over us. And just that that whole incident, you know, there's another moment. We had gotten the PET scan earlier at the first hospital, and it was really interesting. I was forcing it. I almost probably knew the brain surgery. I was going to be the route that we needed to go instinctually. I don't know how I had known that, but I was forcing getting the PET scan and this doctor was like, fine, we'll do the PET scan. And I said, well, when's it ideal to have brain surgery? And he said, before the age of one, and I said, okay. So we did went to go do the pet scan, and the, her, she was so chubby from the ACTH, the steroid that yeah. the the isotopes died, and they actually weren't able to do the pet scan. And so then you you take it full circle. Another nine months. Well, Mickey had brain surgery the day before she turned one. Right. Right. So all these interesting little moments that you look back and you're like, that was not coincidence. I just trusted our, my instinct, and and then I took it advantage of those opportunities of I feel God reaching out to me, having my best friend from USC's cousin call me that day, the same day that the doctor told me that brain surgery was the only option and let leading me and and then then listening, having that instinctual feeling and then answer, you know, you you go. Mm-hmm. You don't trust hesitate. And so that's what I'm trying to do with parents mm-hmm. is getting them to trust me with their most precious precious little one. And, mm-hmm. and that's, and I've learned over time, you know, I'm, I'm definitely more grounded. I'm not like, ah, freaking out, you know, <laughs> helping them, which I was right after the, at the beginning. Now I'm more grounded, but I'm actually a lot more strong. Like this is a medical emergency. Your child needs to get there, you know, because not everybody listens to me. And, um, not everybody, um, takes the hand that I offer but I need to know that we do everything we can to lead them to the hospital and to get them into that level four. And it's very sad some parents don't, you know, take that opportunity and they come back and, you know, they'll even come back, even they've been a surgical consult and they say, it's just too much. And they come back, we're ready and it's too late. Right. The seizures have taken over the entire child's brain and, and surgery is not an option anymore. So yeah, trusting that maternal instinct of mine that I had and then having a husband and mother and group of friends that loved me and, and nurtured us and, and gave us a safe place um to, to sanctuary really um to to navigate that journey and get through it. Um and then this is just the the gravy I you know this is the icing on the top that I can actually take this you know really tragic and devastating time of my life that you know still to this day I have when I go I have the memories, the sights, the smells of the hospital when we go back for monitoring brings back a lot. And it's it's very, very traumatic. Um, however the talking to the parents every day and all getting excited when they tell me they're seizure free or that they listen and they have answers that they wouldn't have had. And knowing that I can just make a little bit of difference on that really lonely journey, because I don't think a lot of people are, are prepared um, for it. How, how you know? could you be?
0: Yeah. I mean, how could you be until you go through something like that? Exactly. Yeah. There's just no way. So, how old is Mickey now? She's seven. Wow! Yeah, she's already? doing amazing. <laughs> yes, already. So,
1: she's doing amazing, and mm-hmm. she has a younger brother, Harrison, and an older brother, brother Preston. And she loves her pink Legos, and she does Nerf wars with them. And um, she's, but she's a girly girl, but she can, she gives it to them too. And we're just so blessed. Yeah, we're very very blessed.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, you've already disclosed that, you know, you turned right around into help mode, yes, you know, after Mickey came home. So, um how did you know where to start or what to do or what your mission was going to be? Step us through that journey and and, you know, talk about mickey's miracles it
1: it really re- just revealed itself to me. I mm-hmm. feel God just kind of put the rose petals out, and I followed them. It started just I had no intention of starting a nonprofit organization. In fact, I worked, um, back in uh, past life uh, at MGM Studios in Wells Fargo in in Los Angeles, where I was a meeting um, and event planner. And we worked with over 100 nonprofits in Los Angeles. And I just remember saying, I do not want to reinvent the wheel. There are mm-hmm. so many nonprofits out there. Why would I do that? There's plenty about plenty out there. But what happened was, Our therapists that were working with Mickey, they just loved working with her, and they started coming to me and saying, Christy, I have this child with epilepsy. I have this child with epilepsy. So I just made cards with my number and name on it, and then I would just help that family. I didn't know how to do it. I would just help them get to that hospital, just help them one after the other. And then about two and a half years into that, there was just such a great need I realized that this needed to be something more um structured and it was obviously that a nonprofit was the, the right way to go. And so it was a whirlwind. We we launched the nonprofit. uh, uh Katie Drasnan that you were mentioning earlier was um a part of that beginning uh, phases of, of launching the nonprofit. And, and before you know it, we were blessed to meet other leaders in the neuroscience uh, space. Um, Nicole Boyce from Global Genes connected me to Amy Miller at Child Neurology Foundation. And the next thing you know, we're a part of the Infantile Spasms Action Network, which is a collaboration of over 30 international organizations dedicated to raising awareness around infantile spasms. And that provided me amazing opportunities to connect with other advocacy organizations that were dedicated to this um, devastating rare disease and epilepsy. We just started helping family after family getting to that higher level of care. And right off the bat, I think what I, my vision was a, that we teach anybody anywhere, as I mentioned earlier, that epilepsy is, Exists that it is deadly and that with a child's brain, because it's developing, like think like a, um, a freeway that's, that's being built. And so it's laying that road down. But if there are seizures, car accidents, if you will, between, um, this exit and that exit, you can't get off. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's happening with the child's brain. It's trying to develop. It's trying to, um, connect all these neuro, um, pathways together, and the seizures are impeding on that development. So it affects a child differently than an adult, and you'll see standstill development. You'll see regression, um, and if that happens over a long period of time, you'll see devastating intellectual disabilities. Um, these children have difficult time um, feeding. So many of them are feeding tubes. Many of them can't walk. I mean, it is a very, very difficult road if seizures cannot be stopped in the developing brain of a child
0: right because it's developing versus exactly. an adult where your brains already developed
1: exactly the foundation is there so it still can greatly impact your life but not on you know this is the, the the brain is the processor and so if it's not functioning correctly then the rest of you won't and so we really our first goal was just to bring epilepsy into the light and and out of the darkness uh, giving a forum for people to you um, not have shame in talking about it. And in fact, talking about it is going to remove the shame. I mm-hmm. uh, think Brene Brown, she said, that's the first thing that you got to mm-hmm. do. You got to talk about it. So let's talk about it. And then um, in addition to that, um, just – developing relationships with the best pediatric epileptologists and level four epilepsy centers across the country. And I'm so excited to share that. I just can't believe it. And about it's been about three years um, now. We In the past month, we had a child at Chalk Children's in Los Angeles, Cook Children's in Dallas, Fort Worth, Lurie Children's up in Chicago, Miami Children's down in Miami, in, up in Boston at, at Mass General. And so we're, we're covering the country um, to know the best of the best so that w- what we can do is when we have a family contact us which they do every day on the on the um, over the internet through our website through social media and we contact them immediately we're basically a 24-hour call center we contact them immediately um, we have an assessment done um, to see where they're at we, we get a consent from them so that we can communicate by on their behalf and then we determined um, after having conversations what the best course of action to you know are they at the right plot place? Do they just need a little bit more resources there? Um, do they need guidance on what their rights are? Um, do you know, or are they in the complete unfortunately this is many times the case, are they in the completely wrong place and they need to be connected to the right hospital in the right time? Mm-hmm. And these doctors that we're working with, they understand that that infantile spasms is a medical emergency, that it needs to be treated immediately. Um, and, and so we're blessed that we have that relationship now where we can email that doctor, I can contact that doctor, have those great great relationships. And then they are seeing that child in the hospital within hours. Uh, um, the neurology team is meeting that child at the ER, or they have an appointment the next day for a long-term monitoring. Yeah. And this is amazing because I, I think that we are able to really capture um, a space that is not being cared for. And I think there's a need there that is being unmet that we're fulfilling. And that is having a sense of urgency and hand holding that family to the right level of care and really teaching them how to advocate for themselves. Um, our goal is to get that child into that level four with that pediatric epileptologist. And then, you know, we have a few other things that we're working on as well. But I would definitely say, you know, of our three pillars, that's definitely the one that is the most important. That's our ministry and just helping those families mm-hmm. not only get to that care. But then, you know, being their advocates and being that friend, you know, you're going through it. Even your your closest friends don't understand. They can't wrap their heads around how to support you, um, but to have another family. And we're now, we're, our community's building where not only me, but now my assistant, who is, whose son we helped to save she's talking to them so they could speak into this better than even I could because this is what Mickey's Miracles has done mm-hmm. for our, my child. And we're just building this community of parents who um, are really in gratitude that we were able to help were able to help them get to where they needed to at the right time.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So it's it's spreading on its own. Yes. And then you have additional people who are helping to spread the word.
1: Yeah, so we we have three areas that we work on. The other area that's really important and I feel, you know, we have three target art audiences. We're looking at parents and caretakers. So that could be a, a child a daycare provider. That could be a grandparent. Um, we want to educate them. We want to educate a medical professionals, specifically ER doctors and pediatricians, because they're the ones that are the first point of contact. Yeah. And so this pedi- pediatric epileptologist is like, we can take care of the kids, but somebody in the community has to recognize it and be adamant. To even a doctor or pediatrician that says no, this is colic or acid reflux when the parent knows it's not.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're educating both. You're absolutely right. Exactly. Because in your case, you know, you went to the doctor. Exactly. The doctor didn't. Doctors do not know everything. No, and yeah,
1: and 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 it really depends on what they the 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 culture of the. Medical school that they've been brought up in, mm-hmm. what they've been exposed to, and neurology isn't a have to for many doctors, um, you know, coming through. Um, so specifically epilepsy, you know, they um, may round in it, but but this depth of knowledge which we want to bring to the mainstream um, consciousness and, and knowledge of. Um, all doctors isn't necessarily something that's taught. And so we're taking it upon ourselves to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we feel it's really important that the people who are in office are educated. Mm-hmm. They're educated that 50,000 people die every year of epilepsy. That's more than breast cancer in our country, more than gun violence in our country. And money is going to other diseases that are affecting fewer people. Um, $30 billion NIH budget, which is now increased under the current administration, believe it or not, um, is a less than half of 1% is going to epilepsy and epilepsy research. This is completely unacceptable acceptable and, and it's very skewed. And so we're saying put more money and research into this, um, so that we can have cures for the third of kiddos that are going to have intractable epilepsy and medicine or brain surgery is not an option for them. Yeah. Um, so in, in that, um, we were really honored that last year they dedicated Mickey's birthday, October 26th as California PD. Epilepsy Day in California. And um, I'm working with Dr. Zupont at Chalk Children's, and we're working. We're going to be headed back to Sacramento in the next couple of weeks. We're going to get be in front of Senate Health. Um, we're going to be in front of a few assembly members, a senator, who we're all talking about. Pediatric epilepsy, what are the barriers to care? There's significant barriers to care, especially through the medical assistance programs. In fact, in, in California, um, a child needs to be on two anti-epileptic medications to receive coverage. If the pediatric epileptologist gets the child down to one epileptic medication or zero, they lose coverage. Can you imagine that? The doctor's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. And now we're going to take that child and send them back to the home hospital that causes the damage and put the child in this precarious situation in the first place by Mm -hmm. possibly misdiagnosing them. Um, The ideal situation is you have a home hospital that may not be a level four. And this is my personal opinion. You refer them up to a level four hospital. They diagnose, they treat the child, and then they send them back to the home hospital where they co-treat. Unfortunately, the reality is the families have such a terrible experience many times, um, lack of care, um, lack of urgency. Now the child has morphed into worse disorders. Now they've failed multiple medications. So they have a 90% chance of failing all. They don't want to go back to that hospital. So mm-hmm. they're willing to drive the distance that they need to or take on those other burdens of going to another hospital that may not be in their community. So, I mean, ideally, we'd love to see – um, Level four epilepsy centers in every state, but there are many like Oklahoma that don't have one. And they have one pediatric epileptologist who isn't taking new patients. We get the child to the right, the right hospital, and then the state won't pay for the child to continue to have care there. So we're, we have a big, Big issues to overcome, but we're excited. The California state legislature is having this dialogue with us. We're going to share these barriers to care, have Dr. Supont share her experience as a clinician. I can share my experience as a parent and working with all these families and seeing, you know, they shouldn't be having to deal with appeal boards to have their child cared and covered um, when they're in the midst of devastation and terrible diagnoses. They should have support.
0: This is the part of the healthcare story that I think is lost on a lot of people. It's failing all of us. I don't think anybody is happy with it. It's not just access. Exactly. You know, I mean, I've shared this a couple of times on the podcast, but um, we just went through uh, moving my parents into a nursing home this last year. And it's, you do, you have to have an advocate and to navigate all the different components. And not just navigate it, but you're fighting for healthcare, which just blows my mind. You know, in in this case too, you literally have to fight to get the care that you need and educate yourself along the way. You know, eight years ago, you didn't know this much about neuroscience. No, and, I can't believe. You know, I'm, I'm,
1: and I look at pediatric epileptologists like rock stars. And I'm, Oh, I get to hang out with them. And right. they're looking at me like I'm a weirdo. But no, it's it's amazing where life takes you. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're all dealed the cards that were dealt. And it's really about taking them and making the most of them and saying, how can I use this to bless others. Yeah. How can I be the conduit? And I'll do this till the day hey, I kick the bucket. I mean, this is this is my life's work, um, which I'm so passionate about because I just don't want anybody to feel the loneliness, the isolation, the desperation that we deal,
0: watching my child seizing uncontrollably and not being able to stop it. What makes you not just collapse under all of that pressure and sadness and stress... I did
1: until I realized that I was making it all about me. Mm. Um, I actually, uh, had seen Marianne Williamson and I shared that exact thing with her. I, she came to Dallas. I was supposed to go to Sacramento for something and something was telling me that's just not right. And so I said no and I got ticket. Then the next thing I know, somehow I got tickets to Marianne Williamson's, uh, was speaking in Dallas. So I, I went and talked to her and I was just in front of her and I said, listen, Thing I, I feel like I'm in a really good place, but I feel like babies are falling on me. Uh, like I have everything I could possibly want and wish for, but the stress of daily wondering—you know—can I take a vacation because a parent will want me and need me? And she said, "You know, you're making it about you." And I thought, "What do you mean?" Mm-hmm. And. I went on this trip to Africa that we were talking about about six months ago, last August. And I was with two um, people that I really admire very much that are leaders in the nonprofit space. And they said, Christy, God has gotten you this far. Don't you think he knows that you're in Africa and you're unavailable? And it just really put everything in perspective. My whole life changed when I came back. I realized it's, it's not me doing this. I'm the conduit. I just get to trust God. It's really God is in the one that has all of these all the problems figured out before they even were created. And so knowing that really takes the pressure off and saying just my role is to stay grounded, to use my meditation, my prayer practices, even before I go in to jump into save the world mode and mm-hmm. my putting my cape on. Mm-hmm. That meditation grounding is so pivotal to do this work because then I just I just facilitate. I just the phone calls come when they're supposed to come. I send them to who they're supposed to be. And don't get me wrong, it's fundraising. It's this. There's so many spinning plates and I have three kids and a couple dogs, but but the bottom line is, I'm I'm the blessing, mm-hmm. and so it's not me that's doing it. It's really just um, kind of sitting back in the seat of your soul, really, and letting um, the energy be use you, and let the phone calls come in and and facilitate where they need to go. Um, it's really that simple. Although it's a daily struggle, I have to say. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> no doubt about it. Um, Yeah, I'd like to know really quickly what your personal definition of leadership is.
1: I think leadership is being willing to do the right thing for the greater good or for the best of all the people that you're leading, um, and even if that means to your detriment. So for instance, I one of the things that I do is I just meet a whole bunch of people and I ask them lots of questions and I'm a sponge. Like I, I want to be, my husband also always says, I want to be the dumbest one in the room, which I wouldn't call it that, but, mm-hmm. but I just want to be the sponge. Mm-hmm. And so I remember having this three-hour lunch with this very intelligent man who was in the pharma- pharmaceutical space and developed drugs and really brilliant. And he said, well, I have one question for you. I said, what? He said, if it took... Mickey's miracles or the laws that you want to make happen or the realization of global pediatric epilepsy, if that happens, but you're not at the finish line, can you handle that? And it took me one second I'm like, I don't see that happening, but absolutely. You know, if I had a law and it got, you know, that we worked really hard on and somebody else was able to take that and put that law into implementation, that's exactly what I want. I think as much as I can remove ego from being a leader, um, and, and really you have to use that part of it for sure. But I think as much as you can kind of stand back and see the bigger picture and being, you know as my husband would say 20 year vet the last one in the room to eat you know mm-hmm. let everybody else serve be a service i went to um, i think this is the best definition i went to a christmas party for my husband's um, business they he is the ceo of a a nurse staffing company and these two women came up to me and they're like, do you know what your husband does? I said, what? He said, he comes around to the whole office and with a coffee mug and serves them all coffee every morning. Um, And I just pictured my husband, this decorated officer with a pot of coffee and creamer, even creamer, Mm -hmm. and pouring everybody in the office. And I was like, that's what leadership looks like. It's it's being willing to serve and sometimes, um, you know, that doesn't mean you're you're necessarily um, in the front of the line, and and I'm perfectly content with that.
0: Right? Yeah, you're not the one that's standing on the stage in yeah. front of
1: the crowd. and right now, I it's my voice for Mickey's Miracles. But what I'm really trying to do is to create an, an environment and this community of parents and advocates, so that I'm dispensable. I mean, that's, that's really what would be the dream is that I'm, you know, my voice is, is just a part of like a unified voice of people saying, we want these, we demand these rights for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, we demand that the kids get the care that they need as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. So what is the future of Mickey's
1: Miracles? Oh, that's so exciting. I don't know. Um, but I do know that it's growing and it's exciting. We, like I said, we're working on legislation right now. Um, we're deciding what that looks like. We, we have a lot of things to offer. Um, but uh, we, we want to just have this conversation with, um, legislatures across the United States, um, starting in California. And I'd like to see that, um, really go down the road so that we, whatever they need to use, whether it's, budgetary constraints, whether it's a law, whether it's getting in front of the insurance commission, just removing these barriers to care and helping children get to that level four epilepsy center immediately um, so that we can protect them. Mm -hmm. Um, I see we're working on a documentary. We've interviewed some of the best of the best in the neuroscience space, uh, the chief scientific officer of CURE, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, some of the best pediatric epileptologists. And then what we'll do is we'll tell the story of four of our families that have Gone through this journey. Um, We just got permission last week actually to film one of our kiddos having brain surgery, where brain surgery is their only option. Wow. So we'll really show that. Um, And then, in the space of the different programs we're offering, we're even offering programs where another mother who is a life coach and has amazing experience as a teacher is going to be doing a six week course um, for our families. A webinar, if you will, on teaching them once you have the diagnosis, now what? How mm-hmm. do you navigate it? How do you do self care? You know, She has a, a daughter who's in a a, a wheelchair and um, is not mobile, but that doesn't mean that she's going to stop going to soccer games. So how do you find a couple minutes? So we love offering that to our families. We've talked about a bus tour um, where we go and we bring PR and, and go to some of those rural areas to educate them about um, pediatric epilepsy. And um, he here locally, we. I'm actually having a meeting tomorrow to talk about some fundraising here that, in Las Vegas. Yes, oh great! So I'll come back and chat with you about that and, and share. But we'll be doing some fundraisers later in the summer, and our first big gala um, will be in Orange County in Newport Beach on November 23rd. So. Yeah. That's fashion the, island hotel
0: that's the event planner in you yes See, i can't back. help it <laughs> right you always have these tools in your tool belt you never know when you have to pull them yeah out. yeah you know i'm curious to know there's so much going on with you and your family and um you know what does your typical day look like
1: that's a great question so we're up very early probably 5.30 to 6.00, um, maybe even earlier, um, we're, we're working with the kids um, and uh, getting them out the door and ready to go. And then I do about an hour to two hours of meditation and prayer time. Um, this is just my um, moments to kind of just really clear out all the cu- clutter and have that conversation with God and say... Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? And uh, which is what Marianne shared with me. And being that vessel and being prepared. And then I'm in the office um, working till um about – four or five o'clock when the kids come home, and then it's c- complete chaos from family then. Family time. And amongst there, I try to get a, a yoga class in, and um, on the weekends, we, we're a lot of family time. Dal- we're actually relocated into Dallas last year, and we just love it. It's the hub. But we're doing a lot of travel. I'm doing a lot of travel to network with funders, to network with the different advocacy groups, and find where we can find partnership, meet all the different... Best pediatric epileptologists in the country, and connect with them and their hospitals, and see about their programs. So it's um it's a whirlwind, but I wouldn't change it for anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, one question I normally ask guests is what drives you, what motivates you, and you've certainly answered that question, you know, ten, 10 times over. I think what motivates
1: me every day is just realizing how blessed I am yeah, and just counting. I think the more and more I try to stay in that gratitude space, Um, helps me not get overwhelmed from how much we have and, and all the vision that we have for growing. You know, it's so, I just am a visionary by heart. I wish I could reel it in, but it just keeps (laughs) taking me over. Um, but I'm just going with it. And, and we've created this amazing community. I have, we have six interns that are across the country that are passionate and about supporting us. I have an assistant who, Um, her son, I said, we, you know, she has a husband with epilepsy and a son with epilepsy. I have a COO, um, who is, is fantastic and he works with veteran organizations across the country teaching vets how to run for office. And so we're, we're just constantly saying, where's the partnership here? Where can we, Bring pediatric epilepsy awareness to the mainstream consciousness, not amongst the epilepsy community, but outside of the epilepsy community mm-hmm. so that people who don't know will know. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't believe the phone calls we get. It was some, you know, cousin that heard me on a radio or it was a public ser- service announcement that they saw that flipped through Facebook. And it's this, you know, maybe three degrees of separation, but that gets that child to us. And we're able to be a part of you know, helping them on their journey.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. So tell me, what is your advice to anyone who's faced with an unknown challenge? They have no idea what to do, but something's happened and they're not sure where to start or where to begin. What's your advice to that person? My
1: first advice is get quiet. Get really quiet and get grounded. And if you have any faith, That this is the time to use it and to Mm -hmm. dive into it. And if you don't, this is the time to learn about it. I feel for me personally, it was, it's fear to faith. So you're in constant fear and worry and struggle. And that moment that Mickey was in brain surgery, and I didn't mention she actually had a second emergency brain surgery two days later because her brain was swelling. And um, I remember just getting on my knees and saying, God, any illusion that I have any control over my daughter is gone. You have her. She's in your arms. There has to be a reason and a meaning for this. And the more I stay in that gratitude and that faith, look, listen, the people that, that we help, the most devastating life situations, and they are the most Grateful, beautiful humans, and the what the the paths that they're walking, there's it's so inspirational. They're my inspiration. Knowing that that I could just help one other kiddo um, get have a quality of life, and and you know give that parent a chance. Those things just you know really get me excited, but I think that just getting super quiet and and meditating and, and have stillness intuition, really right?
0: Really, you lists, talked a lot about yeah, intuition.
1: It's a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so real. It's it's just it's tangible, and it's the, the voice that a lot of people push away. You know, with many different reasons. We we all I mean, I know myself, I, I have moments where I'm like, no, I just want to binge watch something and just <laughs> pretend that this isn't happening, right? Yeah. But this is a time that you just get really still and quiet and um you get in survival mode really. So you hunger down, you have the people in your life that you really support you and you get still enough and and you you know, for me it was just praying and saying show me, show me the way I had God, please, please tell me. And you know, the, it doesn't always, not every child turns out like Mickey. It's devastating. Um, but parents just want to know that they did everything they could. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think getting quiet and getting still and connecting with the God of your understanding um, at least allowed me to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and you just, it's a day by day thing when you're overcoming something big and grand, but you really are going to learn, um, who your support system is, you know, eyes wide open, maybe mouth a little bit more quiet and mm-hmm. and still, and get into that place where you can, um, ask for direction. For me, it was in those moments that I've shared with you that happens to everybody, every human on this planet are getting signs every day which direction to go or not to go. One clue is when things get more and more and more difficult – don't go that way right turn, go turn go the other way <laughs> That's, a, that's a good because piece of when advice. i ground myself and when i'm in the flow of the universe mm-hmm. it's oh, it's almost like what my uh, pastor pastor robert morris says it's like you 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 have like the wind at your sails now mm-hmm. and you can go and and before that you feel like everything is just more and more difficult um so sometimes that's a clue just to to you know settle in and get quiet and pray. And if you have any, um, any different, if you have a faith, this is a time to dive in and to really, um, learn and surround yourself by those people who inspire you. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you're in difficult places and, and this is, like I said, there's divorce with this, that this is like a death, you know, um, it's one of the most stressful things that you'll go through. And in those moments, I think you need to realize that, um, there, there, you can get through this if you can just get still and quiet. And it's not, life is not easy. It definitely comes with bumps in the road. And, and I think it's just about making sure that you have a good tribe at, around you, surrounding yourself. And, um, you have your faith to get you through it.
0: Yeah. Well. Thanks so much for coming in today, oh, Christy, and you. sharing your story. Man, I'm so inspired. And thank you. I love everything that you're doing. And, thank um, you. i got to meet Mickey.
1: You will. <laughs> you can go to Miracles.org. It's M-I-C-K-I-E-S mm-hmm. miracles.org. Uh, we have a Facebook page of the same name, Instagram. You'll see pictures of her and videos of her um, and her sassiness. We, we, um, we actually even do, um, sometimes we have interviews with her older brother to talk about what it's like to have a sibling with a, um, a sister with special needs and, um, yeah, you can, you can follow us. And if there's any family out there that has a child that's seizing, um, has infantile spasms or any, they can get a hold of us, um, reach out to us, call us, you know, put a submission online and we will get back to them right away and we'll kind of assess where they're at and help them get the care that they need.
0: Yeah, excellent. Thanks again for everything you do, for Mickey and your community. I mean, my goodness, incredible.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the time of being here. And we we'll, we look forward to coming back out and inviting you to one of our fundraisers. Excellent.
0: To learn more about pediatric epilepsy and the services that Mickey's Miracles provide, visit mickeysmiracles.org. That's M-I-C-K-I-E-S miracles.org. If you haven't done so yet, one small action that makes a huge difference for our show is to leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. This helps people find us. And finally, if you're interested in investing in either yourself or your team, head on over to leadershipexcursion.co for team building, manager training, leadership training for adults and teams, and professional development opportunities. I'm your host, Cree at home. Thanks as always for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.